Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 303, Rouser's Review of Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? Dr. Randall Rouser is Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Taylor Seminary in Alberta, Canada. I've read several of his books. I've had the privilege of interviewing him, and I've enjoyed interacting with him through the years. He describes himself as a systematic and analytic theologian of evangelical persuasion. And what I like about his work is his intellectual honesty, his clarity, and his willingness to ask unpopular questions. I don't always agree with him, needless to say, but I do think that he's a real thinker. Several years back, I think he gave probably the best review of my book called What is the Trinity? And I wrote a blog post in response and answered some of his questions about that. Uh, When I found out he was interested in my recent debate book with Chris Date, I was happy to send him a copy, and he's published a review on his blog at randallrouser.com, and I thought you'd like to hear this review and some of my interactions with it. So in this episode, I'm going to read the whole thing and then pause at certain points to answer questions and also to ask some questions. Dr. Rouser writes, As the old joke goes, after the Sunday school teacher asks, Okay, children, who left the cap off the glue? The answer comes back in unison, Jesus! You get it, right? Jesus is always the right answer in Sunday school, so presumably he must be the one who left the cap off the glue, too. Jokes aside, the identity of Christ, who do you say I am, is the heart of Christian faith. Is Jesus God's human Messiah or the incarnate Son of God? First comment. I think as an initial reaction, a lot of people will say, obviously he's supposed to be both. He's supposed to be the fully divine incarnate son of God, and he's also supposed to be God's human Messiah. He's supposed to be a real human being. But it's interesting that Dr. Rouser here puts these as two different options, as if you can't choose both. And indeed, I think he's right about that. Again, he writes, is Jesus God's human Messiah? Or is he the incarnate Son of God? So the Son of God looks like it will be an eternal divine person. The human Messiah will be a human person. Remember that the most fully developed traditional view out there is that because of the mysterious union with the complete human nature, the eternal divine Son is, quote, man. That you can predicate man or human of that eternal divine person. But they deny that he's a man. There's already an eternal divine self there. If we now add in a human self as well, there are too many selves. So they talk about the anhypostatic human nature. That is to say, a human nature that doesn't, as with other humans, constitute a human being. So he's right that there's one person in question here, and he can't be an eternal divine person and also a human person. And again, the fully developed Orthodox view is that he's an eternal divine person, but is mysteriously united with a complete human nature, but that human nature isn't a human person. But this mysterious union means that you can describe this eternal divine person in the terms that you would use if you were talking about a human person. So the two claims do conflict. 
And notice the big difference between these theses as concerns the Bible. About Jesus being God's human Messiah, that's all completely explicit and very upfront. In fact, that is the billboard message of the New Testament. Jesus is God's human Messiah. It's explicit that he's the Messiah. When it says Son of God, that's a title of the Messiah. And the New Testament is quite explicit that he's a man. In John 8.40, he refers to himself as a man who told you the truth that he heard from God. Right? He's explicitly a man, not merely, quote, human, because of a mysterious union with a, quote, complete human nature. So should we accept that, the explicit and clear teaching of all the New Testament, or that he's the incarnate Son of God? Now here, you're scraping for evidence. There isn't any clear passage about this in the Bible. Nope, not John 1. Nope, not Philippians 2. You have to really hunt to find any passage that even sounds like it's about incarnation or that sounds like it's teaching or just presupposing something about Jesus having two natures. So, it's a case of pitting the clear and explicit message of the New Testament against inferences which are traditionally made. Back to Dr. Rouser's review. Many Christians will assume that basic question has been effectively settled, at least within the confines of Orthodox Christianity, so it might seem a bit surprising to have it debated in a series titled Essential Christian Debates. However, not all professing Christians agree with the Orthodox consensus. Right. That's kind of an understatement. I mean, the fact is that probably most Christians do not understand the Orthodox consensus that I've been describing just now. And as I discuss in my opening statement in this book, when it comes to the, quote, deity of Christ, there's kind of three positions here, all of which could fall under the orthodox label. One is just simply confusing Jesus and God together, like they're just numerically one. The one just is the other. That, I don't think, is the intention of the tradition, but that is what a lot of people think. I think Dr. Rouser would agree with that, actually. I don't think he's what I call a Jesus-as-God apologist. I think he realizes that a Trinitarian cannot numerically identify the one God with Jesus. Because if they're one and the same, then everything that's true of one will have to also be true of the other, which in this case is ridiculous. No one wants to say that Jesus is tripersonal, and no one wants to say that the Trinity died on the cross. Okay, but then when you say Jesus is God, you're not identifying Jesus and God. Jesus is God and God is Jesus. Then the other option would be saying that Jesus is divine. So you're taking Jesus as God to be a description of Jesus. You're predicating divinity of Jesus. So he has a divine nature. Great. Okay, what's a divine nature? In ancient philosophy, a nature can be a thing, an individual. Like you would be a human nature and I would be a different human nature. Or a nature could be like a defining kind essence. So then there would be just one human nature that you and I and Dr. Rouser all share. So if a nature is an individual of a certain kind, then you and me and Dr. Rouser are three human natures. If a nature is supposed to be a defining kind essence, then human nature would be what makes all three of us human. In some sense, it would be in all three of us or a component of us or something like that. So go back to the old Chalcedonian consensus. There's supposed to be one person in Christ, but two natures. If we take natures in the first sense, 
we're basically saying that there's a human being and also a divine being, that is to say a human self and a divine self. And as I point out in the book, that looks terrible. That makes two sons. That means walking around in Christ, really there are two persons, two selves, and not one, as it would appear on the face of the New Testament. On the other hand, I think, particularly in recent times, a lot of people understand the divine nature and the human nature just to be properties. So divine nature is whatever it is that makes something a god. Human nature is whatever it is, whatever collection of qualities it is that makes something a human being. And so to say that Christ has divine nature and human nature is just saying that he has all the essential qualities of deity, all the defining divine attributes, and also he has all of the essential qualities of humanity. That is, he has whatever is required for being a human being. So basically, you can either just mistakenly collapse Jesus and God together, which again is a demonstrable mistake. See podcast 124 if you're not sure why. Or you can say, okay, I got this two natures theory. Fine, what are the natures? Are they concrete individual things of a certain type? Is that what a nature is? Or is a nature just like a defining essence? Just the properties or qualities that make the owner something of a certain kind? Very different approaches to the tradition here. Three very different approaches. And this is what's hailed as the orthodox consensus. And the difficulties are different in all three cases, as I point out in my opening statement. Okay, back to Dr. Rouser, and when he says minority report here, he means people with views about God and Christ like I have. And whether or not denizens of that wider consensus view that minority report as genuine Christians, dangerous heretics, or something else, their carefully reasoned arguments deserve a hearing in the best sense of iron sharpening iron. Amen to that. Dr. Rouser continues, Before proceeding further, I need to address the debate resolution, which also serves as the book title, Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? As one of our debaters acknowledges, the resolution is awkward. It's even more so when functioning as the book title. Since both debaters accept the full humanity of Jesus, I would have thought a more concise resolution that avoids imposing double negatives on one debater would be more appropriate. For example, in my view, a better resolution and book title would have been, Is Jesus Divine? or Is Jesus God? A couple of comments. One is, I don't think we agree on the humanity of Jesus. I think Jesus is a human self, a human person. And uh, it's not clear to me whether or not Date is committed to the traditional view that he is, quote, man, but not a man. But my view is that he is a man, and that the New Testament is very clear in its presentation of Jesus as that. Now, about the awkward title, it's my fault. I thought it would be an interesting exercise, at least one time, to be on the positive side of a debate. And so that's why I came up with the debate resolution. And Chris Day was nice enough to agree to it, even realizing that there's some awkwardness to it. The reason for that is because I think there's an unfortunate tradition of portraying Unitarian Christians like me as people who, quote, deny the Trinity or who, quote, deny the deity of Christ. And the thing is, we're not deniers, we're affirmers. We didn't just, you know, come across these Trinity theories and incarnation theories and say, bah, I don't like these theories. I hate theories. Don't give me them. They're too complicated. They give me a headache. Unbiblical terminology. Wah. 
we're not just reacting. Our view is based on what we understand New Testament teaching to be. And when you characterize someone like me as a denier, all right, that's a rhetoric that suggests that I'm denying something that is in fact obvious. You talk about a denier, you say that somebody is a Holocaust denier or a climate change denier. And a person who says either one of those, well, they think it's just bloody obvious that the Holocaust happened. And they think it's ridiculously obvious and well-established that climate change is happening. And here's this fool coming along, you know, with his eyes firmly shut, just denying what's right in front of everybody's face. So, just once, I wanted to go first. I'm sure in the future I will debate this and related questions again, and I probably just happily will take the second place next time and be the negative side. But yeah, of course, when I say Jesus is human, I don't just mean that human, that term is predicable of Jesus. I mean that he's a man, and so that rules out his being divine. So in my opening, while I do discuss considerable difficulties facing two natures theories of different kinds, I actually lead with the New Testament teaching about the man Jesus. So in section 1.2, I explain why it's an obvious mistake to confuse Jesus together with God. Section 1.3, I outline the New Testament teaching that Jesus is God's Christ. And so that's what my view is based on. It's not based on sort of reacting against something or denying something. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Rouser gets into the debaters and the actual debate. Dr. Rouser continues his review. Now let's meet our debaters. Arguing the affirmative, Jesus is human but not divine, is Dale Tuggy, the tireless Unitarian philosopher, blogger, and podcaster of Trinities. Arguing the negative, Jesus is human and also divine, Chris Date, an equally tireless Trinitarian speaker, blogger, and YouTuber, best known for his work with Rethinking Hell. The book consists of two chapter-length opening statements, two chapter-length rebuttals, four chapters of alternating cross-examination, and two closing statements. So you're probably wondering who won. I'll just say this. I wouldn't look forward to debating either of these gents. Each is very informed about a diverse field of subjects as the book ranges over carefully reasoned exegesis. Each debater assiduously avoids proof-texting, thoughtful engagement with the patristics, and additional philosophical and theological considerations. What is more, they don't mind taking the proverbial gloves off and chiding each other, though I did think that at times the sidebar critiques detracted from the overall work. For example, Date says, quote, If you, the reader, reject the deity of Christ, I plead with you to do so for better reasons than Tuggies. The irony is that by lampooning Tuggies' reasoning as poorly argued, which it isn't, Date, by implication, criticizes the book of which he is a co-author. Tuggy is the analytic philosopher, and that comes through clearly. 
For example, he deftly analyzes the logical coherence of Date's apparent move between one-self and three-self conceptions of the Trinity. While Date appeals to the formula of God as one being in which three persons subsist, while the second person also subsists in human being, Tuggy challenges the meaning, coherence, and exegetical bona fides of this phraseology. For example, Tuggy asks, quote, He doesn't think I am the human nature in which I supposedly subsist, so why should, say, the Father be the divine nature slash being in which he subsists? Date pushes back by insisting that Tuggy is attempting to put God in a, quote, proverbial box and shrink him down to human size. But that sounds like little more than rhetorical bluster. For his part, Tuggy helpfully notes that other Trinitarians move beyond the being-subsistence distinction by articulating more defensible attempts to articulate Trinitarian and incarnational logic. Quick comment. Yeah, I don't think there really is any being-subsistence distinction that's standard in the literature. And in the note that Dr. Rouser highlights, I'm referring to some encyclopedia articles and handbook chapters where people survey the theoretical options to try to come up with an overall plausible trinity or incarnation theory. It's actually really hard, and Date uh, makes some philosophical speculative moves, and I don't think it works out well. But my point in that note is, there are lots of moves to make here, and it's not as if Date's speculations are clearly among the best of them. If you want to really explore the field, you'll have a lot more work to do. Back to Dr. Rouser. While Tuggy's analytical acumen is generally a boon to the debate, it is not always so. At one point, Date makes an interesting appeal to the aesthetic beauty of the Orthodox narrative in which God is the self-sacrificing father, and he contrasts it with Tuggy's lesser account of God choosing a humble servant, Jesus, to be his mediator. Date observes, quote, It is a more beautiful, more inspiring story than the one told by Tuggy, in which the Creator Father instead creates an exclusively third party to die in the place of other human beings. In his rebuttal, Tuggy attempts to reduce Date's observation to a seven-step syllogism, but it seems to me that Date's point is better understood not as an enthymeme, but rather as a direct appeal to aesthetic intuition. Quick comment. That may be so. Of course, as I point out in the book, it's not clear that aesthetic intuitions should be relevant to the truth of the matter, and as I also pointed out in the book, how can someone like Date compare the one God, supposedly the triune God, to a human father who sacrifices to save his child? Is the one triune God analogous to a single human self? If it is, then it would seem to be a one-self trinity theory, although in the book Date vehemently denies that he holds a one-self trinity theory. But if you're talking about three selves and uh, one of them dies, how would that be analogous to a human father sacrificing to save his child? I guess the way Date is probably thinking is, following a habit of James White and some other recent apologists, likes to sort of characterize his Christology as saying that Jesus is Yahweh. So I guess he's kind of thinking that any of the persons of the Trinity is Yahweh. So whatever any of the three persons does counts as what Yahweh himself is doing. Does that make sense? Ultimately, I don't think Date's views on the Trinity do make sense. But yeah, Rouser's point is well taken. 
Sometimes analyzing somebody's paragraph into an argument with numbered premises helps advance the discussion, and sometimes it doesn't so much. Of course, I think the most important thing I said to date's speculation here that God is like a self-sacrificing human father is that the New Testament gospel is not that God himself died for you. The New Testament gospel, and this is crystal clear, really in the whole New Testament, but I especially refer people to Romans 5 to look at, the actual New Testament gospel is that the one God loved us so much that he sent someone else to die for us, not himself. Plus, since being God entails being essentially immortal, it would be nonsense to say that God died for us. An essentially immortal being, by definition, can't die. Back to Dr. Rouser. While Date seems out of his element when discussing logic, he is at home in biblical exegesis and the views of the early church fathers. In his opening statement, he puts his eggs in a handful of exegetical baskets, specifically pertaining to Philippians 2, 5-7, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, and somewhat surprisingly, the maternal bird metaphor of Matthew 23, 37-38, and Luke 13, 34-35. Strategically, this was a wise approach, and I have found Date's treatment of Philippians 2 to be particularly persuasive. Here I think Dr. Rouser's being a little bit too generous. In my view, every time Date got into an issue with the church fathers, he loses the argument, essentially. I think what Date shows about the early church fathers that we discussed is that pretty much to a man, they believe in the pre-existence of Christ, and they believe that Christ had some kind of divinity. But of course, these are really not helpful to the thesis that he's proving in the book, which is supposed to be that Jesus is divine, like fully divine, divine in the way that the one God, Yahweh, is divine. And these authors do not agree with that, as I show from their explicit words multiple times. So what he'll do, like a lot of apologists, is quote Justin Martyr or Tertullian or Irenaeus or Origen as calling Jesus God or Lord, and he'll say, aha, these guys think like me. They think Jesus is a person within the multipersonal God, that he's just as divine as the Father, like the Nicene say. And almost every time, I'll talk about exceptions in a bit, I come along with the explicit words of whoever it is in question and show that they do not think that the Logos, the word of John 1, or the pre-human Jesus, they don't think that's the same God as the one true God. They think he's a second and lesser God, lesser in knowledge, lesser in goodness, and for some of them, lesser in age, and for Tertullian, lesser in how much of the divine nature he has. Philippians 2, did Date make a case? Well, Date outlined a popular sort of reading of Philippians 2, but I think I gave very convincing reasons why we cannot take Jesus to be fully divine in that very passage. Namely, that Jesus dies, whereas being fully divine implies essential immortality in Paul's view. And also, Jesus is worshipped after his exaltation in this passage to the glory of God, whereas fully divine being wouldn't be worshipped to the glory of any other. He would be an ultimate object of worship. I also gave strong reasons why we shouldn't overinterpret Paul's statement that Jesus is in the form of God to be saying that Jesus has the divine essence, even though he goes on to say that Jesus has a kind of equality with God. 
About Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, I think maybe what's interesting about the discussion, which Dr. Rouser doesn't comment on, is Date's constant equivocation on the term creator. So as I point out more than once in the book, creator can mean being the ultimate source of the cosmos, or it can just be, well, somebody who was involved somehow in the creative process. So the Logos theorists sort of introduced this confusion with their Logos theories. They thought really only the Father is the creator, but sometimes they would say there are two creators or describe the Son as creator, when in fact their view is that God created all things through an intermediary. An earlier Logos theorist, God brings this into existence, kind of emanates this out of himself, this intermediate being, and he creates through him. Right, and creation is an intentional action. It's something done by a person. So, Date just kind of steadfastly ignores the difference between these two ideas of being a creator. And he just wants to say, hey, Yahweh's the only creator. Note the personal name there and note the intentional action. And he just says the Father and Son are the same creator, right? They're both Yahweh, which again makes you think they're supposed to be the same self, doing this one and the same intentional action rather than cooperating, which is what the Logos theorists were thinking. So there's a ton of confusion there, and he just can't get past it, right? He's just, no, there's only one creator, it's Yahweh. Anybody who's in any way involved in creation is Yahweh. That's not what the Logos theorists thought, who Mr. Date is constantly appealing to. I think the danger for a lot of adherents of orthodoxy reading this book is they just will see something like their interpretation and or a popular interpretation of these texts thrown out there, and they will say, aha, Date made his case, right? But what Date has to do is show that the text has to be read in a way so that the text implies that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine. And none of these texts clearly do this, as I point out. So if everything he says about Philippians is correct, uh, Jesus has some kind of equality with God. Why well, I think that entails that he's divine in the way the one God is divine. He says some things there, but I don't think it's convincing. Of course, the reader will have to judge for him or herself. Do you really get out of Philippians 2 that Jesus is essentially omniscient? That Jesus is essentially omnipotent? That he's uncreated? That he exists necessarily and eternally? That he's, you know, untemptable? How would you get those things out of Philippians 2? How would you get those things out of Hebrews 1, 2, and 3? If it's true that God created things through him, well, that's consistent with him not being fully divine, right? Because it doesn't even require his eternality or his uncreatedness or even his omnipotence. Even Philippians 2 doesn't obviously require Jesus' eternality. It could be describing some kind of descent of a divine being, but it wouldn't have to be a divine being who is divine in the same sense the Father is divine. Which is why all the Logos theorists are subordinationists. Right, having this second God be a lesser divine being allows them to retain the traditional doctrine that the Father is the unique God, the Almighty, the one ultimate source of all else. When the Trinity's podcast returns, dates appeal to protective bird imagery.
Dr. Rouser continues, Meanwhile, I was unpersuaded by Tuggy's claim that Jesus' use of bird imagery was disconnected from divine implications. Divine implications. So, I think what Dr. Rouser is saying is that it's clear that in those texts that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine. I think that's just way too strong a claim. As I describe in the book, it's pretty easy to read that text as being Jesus talking in his own voice as God's human Messiah, or possibly you can read it in terms of Jesus speaking like a prophet, speaking first person on behalf of the one God in the way that prophets often do. But my strongest argument against that overinterpretation is something like this. Take, for instance, the gospel according to Matthew, but the same would hold for Luke. Now put your hand over that passage in Matthew 23. It's only two verses, right? Now read the rest of the book. Does this book overall teach you that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine? That he has such qualities as eternality, uncreatedness, essential omniscience, essential omnipotence? Does it give you the impression, as Mr. Date likes to say, that Jesus is Yahweh himself? I would say that in this gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus is a man who is the unique son of God. He's God's human Messiah. That's the explicit theme of the book. Okay, and it doesn't say anywhere else that Jesus is God or that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine. So, given everything else that Matthew says about Jesus, the amazing and unique and wonderful Jesus, what's the chance that in these two verses, he's going to slip in the claim that Jesus is just as divine as is the one God? What's the chance of that? Meanwhile, he's spending his thesis statement on lesser claims, just that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. So, either this author does not teach that Jesus is divine in the way the one God is divine anywhere except these two verses, and then he just sneaks it in kind of under the radar, which is a very strange thing to do if you think about it, and not at all a good communication technique. Or, on the other hand, Dr. Rouser could take the view that actually now the deity of Christ is taught all over the book of Matthew. I mean, goodness, Jesus walks on the water. Who could do that but God? Jesus forgives sins. Who could do that but God? Jesus, you know, speaks authoritatively. Who could do that but God? Now, these are all terrible arguments and are just manifest misreadings of the text. Does Dr. Rouser want to go that way? Or is this just kind of weirdly sneaking in a very strong claim about Jesus while you're spending all the main energy of the book on the way lesser claim that Jesus is God's Messiah? I can see how one might think that the author is implying that Jesus is God himself. However, I think it'd be best for Dr. Rouser or for any Trinitarian to just agree with what I said about these verses. Back to Dr. Rouser. In my view, Date also scored points when it came to the citation of Ignatius of Antioch's high Christology, while Tuggy's suggestion that the text was corrupted with later interpolations sounds to me like special pleading. Date also pointed out that Tuggy never responded to his citation of Melito of Sardis, who certainly has one of the most striking Christologies of the patristic era. Yeah, well... I think in the book, with my very limited number of words to respond, 
I did take a little while to explain why we should be a lot more skeptical of Ignatius's supposed seven letters than a lot of scholars are nowadays. I mean, we know that there was a lot of forgery that went on in the name of Ignatius. We also know that he was kind of a theological political football in the 4th century, and probably long before the 4th century as well. And another thing that I didn't mention, but maybe should have, is that actually the date of Ignatius is disputable. It's fashionable to put him in the end of the 1st century or the very early 2nd century. He actually could be closer towards the middle of the 100s, maybe around 140, according to some scholars. The reason I didn't really say more about Ignatius and his, quote, high Christology is that in my opening, I had already debunked the sort of argument that Date was making. In these supposedly genuine letters from Ignatius, and by the way, the scholar who established the genuineness himself, this 19th century big shot named Lightfoot, he himself thinks that they have been corrupted by adding more God terminology about Jesus in them. When he's making his critical decisions about what the actual text should be, he thinks sometimes as time goes on, people are sticking more God talk in there about Jesus. So he takes some of it out, but he leaves a lot of it in. So sometimes Ignatius sounds like the New Testament when he talks about the one God just being the Father. But unlike the New Testament, he likes to call Jesus God and our God and so on. But since we know that in the New and Old Testaments, the words we translate as God can be used of the one true God and also of others. So what if Ignatius is calling Jesus God? That actually doesn't mean in a second century context that he thinks Jesus is the same God as the one true God. Uh, It needn't bother me. Suppose these letters are perfectly genuine and uh, this guy is calling Jesus God. Yes, but that's still consistent with thinking that the one true God just is the Father. It's just using God terminology more liberally, you could say. Even though, as Date points out, a couple of times Ignatius's letters refer to Jesus as eternal and impassable, at a first glance that might make you think that he thinks that the Son is the one God. But no, that's compatible with the Son being a second and lesser being. And again, much of the time he sounds like the New Testament, but just with some more God terminology put onto Jesus. So I probably should have said more about Ignatius. My views don't require a very skeptical view about Ignatius, although I do think one should be fairly skeptical of those letters. Now about Melito of Sardis, yeah, I declined to say anything about him further in the book, and I've heard Chris date at least one time in a post-debate and post-book interview sort of brag that he triumphed in this respect, (laughs) but... The reason I didn't mention him is that I understand Melito of Sardis to be just another Logos theorist. Now, he's especially beloved of people with confused views because he's kind of a paradox monger and he loves to say apparently contradictory things because he thinks they're really deep. But in his context, right, in maybe the 180s or around 190, something like that, yeah, he's just a Logos theorist. His views are really the same as someone like Justin Martyr. And I well established in the book that Justin Martyr thinks that the Logos is a second and lesser God than the one true God. And he doesn't think that the one true God became incarnate. He thinks this lesser being did. So Melito likes to refer to Jesus as God and call him the creator and so on. In On Pasha, section 82, 
He refers to the Lagos as the firstborn of God, begotten before the morning star. Right? He's a two-stage Lagos theorist. He thinks that when it was time to create, God emanated out this second and lesser divine being, and then he had to create uh, through the mediation of that being. And like Justin, he thinks that the God or the Lord that was seen in the Old Testament always is this lesser being. So in the second to last section of On Pasha, this is section 104, he's referring to Christ and he says, He it is who made the heaven and the earth and formed humanity in the beginning, who was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, who took flesh from a virgin, who was hung on a tree, who was buried in earth, who was raised from the dead and ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has the power to save all things, through whom the Father has acted from the beginning and forever. He still distinguishes Jesus from the Father, and the Father here is assumed to be the one true God. Again, in a letter, when he's not in high rhetoric mode, emphasizing paradoxical-sounding language, he says pretty straightforwardly exactly what a Logos theorist would say. He says, quote, We are not worshipers of stones without sense perception, but we worship the only God who is before all and over all. And we worship his Christ, who is the Logos of God before all ages. Right, so God is before all, including the Logos. God is over all, including the Logos. When he's talking about the only God here, he means the Father. So he's a Unitarian subordinationist like other people of that era. Of course, it's pretty clear in the course of the book that Mr. Date is just in denial that mainstream Christian theology was Unitarian and subordinationist in this period among these Logos theorists. But that's another subject. I would urge Dr. Rouser not to use vague expressions like high Christology, because sometimes when scholars talk about high Christology, they just mean basically that Jesus should be religiously worshipped, which is something I agree with. And the famous biblical Unitarian Socinus agreed with that as well, and he vigorously defended that view against other Unitarian Christians. On the other hand, high Christology might be a different way of saying that Jesus is fully divine. Well, Ignatius of Antioch doesn't obviously have a high Christology in that sense. Neither does Melito. Neither does the New Testament. You have to really squeeze it hard to try to get some implication that Jesus is divine in the same way that the one true God is divine. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Rouser has some more comments on our exchanges about patristic theology. Dr. Rouser continues, Date and Tuggy have a spirited exchange about several other patristic theologians as well. I found the wrangling over Tertullian to be particularly instructive, as I thought each debater scored points with this Latin theologian. 
Yeah, about scoring points, I mean, Date could point out that Tertullian agrees with him about certain things, like the pre-existence of Christ and Christ being in some sense divine in addition to being human. But what he couldn't do, and what I showed Tertullian completely disagrees with, is he couldn't show what's relevant to the debate topic of the book, which is that the Son is divine in the same sense that the one true God is divine. So as far as Tertullian, I mean, I think really Date lost the argument in every respect. Most importantly, he doesn't show that Tertullian thinks Jesus is fully divine, and I show that he denies precisely that in more than one way. He also, and I think this is a bit of a distraction, brings up what he thinks are Trinitarian-sounding passages in Tertullian, and I very carefully explain why, no, in his context, in light of all the things that he says in his many extant works, no, that passage isn't presupposing that there's a triune God. A triune God, a tripersonal God, is never once mentioned by Tertullian anywhere in any of his writings. In just a couple of passages, translators massage the translation in that direction, but the overall picture of Tertullian's theology is really pretty clear. He thinks the one true God just is the Father himself, and then there's this lesser divine being, the Logos, and then there's a yet lesser and even younger divine being, the Spirit. Back to Dr. Rouser. And that brings me to a central issue. It seems to me that Tertullian, like other patristics, has a theology that very much represents a transitional form. In short, while I agree with Tuggy that we need to be careful about reading this third-century theologian anachronistically in the terms of later Nicene and Chalcedonian orthodoxy, I believe he clearly represents a significant step toward that orthodoxy. The question is whether that step was toward a fuller orthodox revelation or a derivation from an original scriptural deposit. Transitional form. Yeah, I mean, that's right. These Logos theorists are a step away from New Testament theology and Christology, and in some respects, they're a couple of steps closer to what orthodoxy eventually comes up with. Of course, seeing it as sort of pointing at this wonderful Orthodox resolution is kind of reading back into it, you know. Uh, That's just to presuppose that the glorious achievements of the early ecumenical councils really were correctly based on Scripture as they claimed. I mean, the fact is that Tertullian and all of the early Logos theorists who thought that the Logos came into existence before creation they would all have been severely denounced by the Nicene era and later Catholics, right? Because they don't believe in the eternity of the Logos. They also don't believe in the full divinity of the Logos. They also think the one God is the Father rather than the one God being the Trinity, as is the orthodox and enforced position from just before the time of Augustine onward. So when Dr. Rouser says the question is whether that step was toward a fuller orthodox revelation or a derivation from an original scriptural deposit, I think he meant to say deviation from an original scriptural deposit, not a derivation. So there's a logical conflict between the one God being the Father only and the one God being the Trinity. And if I'm right that the New Testament teaches that the one God just is the Father then this later Trinitarian idea of a tripersonal God is a deviation from the original. I don't think a Protestant should be too surprised that an emperor-sponsored and emperor-enforced consensus of Catholic bishops, and I know 
Dr. Rouser, like me, has been a Christian basically his whole life. And also, I think like me, he has always been in non-bishop-led Christian groups. So for not one second of his Christian life has he thought that he was under the rulership of Catholic, small-c Catholic bishops. Right, same for me. But then why would we think that these type of people meeting in the 4th century and the 5th century can authoritatively determine questions of doctrine? thus usurping scholars of scripture. So, I'm not exactly sure what his view is, but it seems to me that he's committed to this, that in some sense, first century revelation was not sufficient. He must think that Christianity needed the developments that he's speaking of, at least I think that's his view. Okay, but this more that was needed is this one ongoing revelation, like through the bishops, Or does he agree with date that rather these claims of the Trinity and Incarnation are all just really clear implications of the text, what I called in the previous episode of the Trinity's podcast, the deduction delusion. I think Dr. Rouser realizes that, you know, the full deity of Christ is not a clear implication of the text because people like Tertullian and Origen, who are fully informed, do not think that the Logos is fully divine. Okay, well, if lots and lots of competent readers aren't deriving this implication, it must not be an obvious implication, right? Okay, so then he agrees with me against date then, but does he really want to take a a large C Catholic type position that God was continuing his revelation through the bishop-led church? If the bishop-led church was God's organization on earth back then, it would still be now, right? Of course, then you have to decide which is the true successor of that ancient movement. Is it the Eastern Orthodox? Is it the Roman Catholics? Or is it the Anglicans? And those have some pretty serious disagreements with one another, and Catholics and Orthodox clearly think the other ones are importantly mistaken. So I guess one question I have for Dr. Rouser is this. Which century was it? when God had sufficiently revealed the truths that Christians need to know about himself and about his Son. I say that was in the first century, in the writings which are included in the New Testament. What does Dr. Rouser say? Would he say that divine revelation is still going on in the year 451 at the Council of Chalcedon? Another question I have for Dr. Rouser is this. What does Dr. Rouser make of my case that New Testament theology clashes with any Trinity theory? Right, because if God just is the Father, I'm talking numerical identity there, it's false that God just is the Trinity. And if God just is the Trinity, it's false that God just is the Father. Because the Trinity ain't the Father and the Father ain't the Trinity. You have to distinguish the Father from the Trinity so they can't both be identical to the one God, right? That's one quick way to put it. This incompatibility that I'm alleging must be mistaken if later Trinity and Incarnation theories are in some positive sense building on or built out of what's actually in the Bible. Now some, but not all of my questions are answered by what Dr. Rouser says next. So back to him. And that brings me back to an underlying assumption that seems to be held by both Date and Tuggy, according to which we should expect that fundamental doctrines like Incarnation and Trinity, if true, would have been held by the original Christians and New Testament authors. However, this is not an assumption I am inclined to accept. I think one would be far better off recognizing the degree to which the Spirit led the Church into a fuller understanding over time, 
John 16, 13, as Christians wrestled with and reflected on the Christian deposit of revelation in light of the lived experience of Jesus in community until that revelation reached a definitive form of articulation at the councils and creeds of the 4th and 5th centuries. In short, whether or not Luke or Paul or John held fully fleshed doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation does not settle the question of whether we should do so. Fully fleshed, well, I think talking about fully fleshed doctrines is a red herring, just a distraction. The question is not whether New Testament authors hold fully fleshed Trinity or Incarnation doctrines. The question is whether they hold any form of those doctrines at all, even primitive form, even confused or undeveloped. I have not argued that they either don't teach those doctrines or they hold fully fleshed, you know, 5th century and beyond versions of them. I've argued that they don't hold to any version of them. This is in my opening in the book, but a broader argument as concerns the Trinity is in podcast 189. How, Dr. Rouser, would you make a case that these authors in the New Testament don't think that the one God just is the Father? And how can you make a case that they don't think that Jesus is a real human being, that is to say, a man, a human self? Do you really think they would deny that? Because they would need to deny those two things to hold Trinity. If they're Trinitarians, they must think it's false that the one God just is the Father, if they're any sort of Trinitarians, right? Unless they're just wildly confused, if we're going to be that uncharitable to them. If they hold to an incarnation in which there's just one person, the eternal son, uh, who, you know, hypostatically united with an anhypostatic human nature, then they must not think that Jesus is a man. They must just think that he's human, but not a human. I would like to see you make a case that the New Testament authors don't think those two things, but rather think that God is the Trinity and that Jesus is man, but not a man. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Rouser reflects on the excellent introduction to the book by Roman Catholic analytic theologian Dr. Timothy Paul. writes, It is a matter of some irony that this book, written by two very Protestant thinkers, should have a foreword penned by respected Catholic philosopher Timothy Paul. Paul offers the following particularly interesting response to the whole debate. Quote, the general impression is one of disquiet. Here we have two men, each thoughtful, each trying hard to serve the God he loves, each approaching the available data with prayer and the best tools we have available. End quote. And yet, Rouser comments, they reasonably disagree about a very important issue. Paul says, quote, The fact that God is trying to communicate something vastly important to his church in Holy Scripture, something upon which, even in trying our best with the best tools and intentions, we as a community fail to find consensus. Rouser writes, Paul concludes by Riley suggesting that the answer may invoke reconsidering, quote, the authority structure that God has left in place for his church and whether or not God saw fit to provide a testifier to break these exegetical impasses. 
I'm reminded at this point of John Eck's warning to Martin Luther, who insisted on reading scripture and articulating doctrine apart from authoritative guidance of a magisterium. Eck says, quote, For what purpose does it serve to raise a new dispute about matters condemned through so many centuries by church and council, unless perhaps a reason must be given to just anyone about anything whatsoever? But if it were granted that whoever contradicts the councils and the common understanding of the church must be overcome by scripture passages, we will have nothing in Christianity that is certain or decided. So could we break the impasse by deferring to the magisterium, as Paul seems to suggest? The problem here is that just as a reasonable biblical, theological, historical, and philosophical case can be made for and against the divinity of Jesus, so a reasonable case can be made for and against the Catholic magisterium. And so we merely push the problem back a step. My comment is, indeed, that's very well said by Dr. Rouser. My way past the disquiet that Dr. Paul mentions, by the way, is to notice what there is near universal Christian agreement about. And that's roughly, you could say, what's taught about God and Christ in the book of Acts, or maybe what's expressed in most of the Apostles' Creed. Those basic claims of the gospel, that God sent his Son, that the Son voluntarily died an atoning death, that God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, that this son will return and rule on behalf of God. There is agreement about these things widely in Christianity. There are confusions afoot about some of them. But I don't think God just sort of left us to wander in confusion. I think he made clear the things that are really essential. And that's why you see such wide agreement about those essential claims. And we have made things more difficult by our speculations and by our thought-squashing authorities that we've come up with. Back to Dr. Rouser. I understand that some may indeed find, is Jesus human and not divine, to be disquieting, but I found it exhilarating. For many reasons, I think date is correct. But I also think that Tuggy provides an invaluable service by pressing Christians back to the biblical texts Christian traditions, reason, and experience. This book would make an excellent textbook for an upper-level, undergraduate, or seminary course in Christology. Even more, it provides an excellent guide for any Christian interested in a serious reflection on that age-old question, Who do you say I am? And then at the end of the review, Dr. Rouser mentions that I had sent him a free copy so that he could review it which I don't think adversely affected his review in any way. So about his statement, for many reasons, I think date is correct. I'm curious about these reasons. Dr. Rouser, does it go past Philippians 2 and the protective bird imagery? There are a lot of dodgy arguments for the deity of Christ that I preemptively took down in my opening. For instance, you really can't argue that Jesus is divine in the way the one God is divine based on his being called God, based on his forgiving sins, based on his doing miracles, based on his atonement for our sins, based on his preexistence, right? That doesn't imply full deity. Even based on his being the one through whom God created, that doesn't require full divinity. Even the pattern of worship we see in the New Testament where only the Father and Jesus are worshipped, not the Trinity and not the Holy Spirit, and where the exalted Jesus is worshipped to the glory of God the Father, 
These don't fit well with traditional Trinity and incarnation theories. It looks like nothing in the New Testament, rightly understood, implies full divinity. And since, Dr. Rouser, you're good with philosophy, you're not afraid of philosophical arguments, and you know you enjoy digging into them like anybody trained in philosophy does, one thing I was surprised that the review didn't mention were my arguments that saying that one being is both human and divine implies four contradictions. I thought the derivations were very straightforward. I showed clearly that there are at least four contradictions that are implied. Date got in there and tried to philosophize a bit to show how these contradictions weren't implied. And I think in every case, either didn't solve all the problems or raised problems that were just as bad. What did Dr. Rouser think about that? But I guess what I'm most wondering is, why does Dr. Rouser think that Jesus is divine in the way that the one God is divine? How would he make the case? I really don't know. Some people just avoid thinking about this issue based on, you know, how could God possibly allow an error about this sort of thing to infect mainstream Christianity? Surely he must guide us so as to avoid this type of difficulty of running into incoherence and confusion about Jesus. But I think Dr. Rouser is the kind of guy who actually looks at the material and actually considers the arguments and doesn't just sort of self-comfort with basically an excuse, a little just-so story about what supposedly God wouldn't allow. So I urge Dr. Rouser to let us know why he thinks a Christian should, on the basis of the Bible, think that Jesus, the Son of God, is divine in the same way that the one God is divine, or even just in the same way that the Father is divine, either one. So uncreated, essentially eternal, essentially omniscient, essentially omnipotent, essentially immune from temptation. How do we correctly conclude based on scripture that that is so, and that Jesus isn't a man, but rather, quote, human or, quote, man? Someone of whom the descriptions human and man are predicable, although not himself a human person. Again, I don't think he's a Jesus-is-God apologist, someone who just straightforwardly confuses Jesus with the one God, or who collapses the Father and the Son. But then I really don't know why he thinks that based on Scripture, a Christian should think that Jesus has all the divine attributes. I invite Dr. Rouser to address these questions and further interact with my arguments in his future work. Thanks to Dr. Rouser for a very good review. If you are a blogger, podcaster, YouTuber, etc., and you would like to review this book, contact me through social media and I'll send you a free copy. This week's thinking music has been the track Isolation Swing by Admiral Bob. As always, you can find a link to this track on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Thanks for listening. 
We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.